welcome to episode 26 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. <laughs> Hello there, Steve. Our guest for this episode is Paul Kamaski, who spoke to us from his home in Maine in the US. Paul very generously shared his first ever demo, which, unlike the usual story of a first ever recording, Ben, kick-started Paul's adventure in music in a swift and dramatic fashion. Yeah, you say swift. I mean, just just like that. It was captured everything about the kind of bravado of youth when you're starting out as a, as a young person, as a musician. And uh, yeah, the way their kind of story just went in a roller coaster fashion um, from from the first sort of the first sort of meeting to well, yeah, when you come to the story, it's fantastic. It's just got so much kind of pace and energy. Um, you kind of you're like you you're gathered up in the in the storm of it, aren't you? You are speaking of storm. We can hear the rain falling on the roof of your uh, your office in the garden. It's very very lovely. I've always loved I've always loved the sound of the you know the 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 rain on the roof or the rain on the tent and that. I'm not in a tent, of course, um, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's nice and nice and dramatic and effective, isn't it? It is nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, Going back to Paul, I loved the story of the early days of Paul's band, The Nervous Kind, and the link to the clothes shop and the swagger and self-confidence they employed to try and create a vibe and a mystique for the band. Yeah, the way that, I mean, and if you look at some of the pictures, hopefully we'll be able to sort of post some of those up, but um, they really did have a, have a, a definite look to them. And it kind of seemed to um, very much... Um, give them that sort of gang mentality that you need when you're first starting out um well you know, maybe maybe when you say maybe when you you're first you're young you don't need it so much because you have it as a natural kind of essence but um yeah paul paul said it really gave them a sort of uh, an increased confidence in how they carried themselves didn't they yeah 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 absolutely and like you said earlier on that the episode really rattles along doesn't it and it feels like we could record it again and get a whole raft of different stories from Paul's experiences. Oh yeah, when we came to the sort of to the tail end of the story, and we felt like we'd raced through it at breakneck sort of speed, and I and really wanted to kind of, if we'd had time, and you know we could have made time, could have easily backtracked at several points in the conversation and just kind of stuck in there and got in a bit more and kind of I think we could have talked for you know into the into the sort of deep part of the night very very easily yeah definitely definitely he was a fantastic guest and and i i i think probably we both felt that it would be great to go back and revisit with paul and and uh, talk about the experiences he had with his other band um outside of the nervous kind we sort of touched on it a little bit but it feels like there's much more of a story there to be had oh yeah i really i really want to do that and i think you know one of our one of our reflections on the whole episode was just how much this discussion with Paul really encapsulated the essence and the ideas that we set out behind this podcast pretty much pitch perfectly. We couldn't really have scripted scripted it better if we had sat down and made a very deliberate attempt to do that. It was just just right on the money. Absolutely. And we're hugely grateful to Paul for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to speak with him. Okay, just to kind of kind of finish off or edge towards the end of this introduction, I um, just wanted to say a few words about about the kind of the start of the podcast and 
like some of the best ideas that the seeds of this podcast started with a you know conversation between friends around a pub table and it's it's been amazing to come to the end of this year of true adversity for you know for all people and find ourselves in the position of being 25 episodes down the line and yet again it's been a reminder for us if we ever needed one that music always has the ability to carry through times of adversity hmm. i think if I had one concern, Steve, starting out at the beginning of this podcast, it was how many conversations would it be possible to have strung around the same kind of musical themes? Mm. But of course, it turns out that the possibilities are really endless, aren't they? Mm. And in fact, the kind of the sheer breadth and diversity of people's stories has blown us away at times, mm. even though it's shown us that there's a great commonality amongst the experiences of being a musician not least that um and this is very much carried through in paul's story that once you embark upon a journey of making music it's nigh on, nigh on impossible to ever walk away from it absolutely yeah it's only right you know that we make space and time to thank each and every person who took the time to come on the show and recount the stories of their journeys through a life in music so in no particular order um thanks to dave hulegaard and kyle lee Mick Garris, Paul Preston Mills, Yvette Pike, uh, Andy McLeod, James Atkin, Connor Hare, James Acaster, Dempsey, Jason Smith, Susie Gage, Dave Guttridge, Kevin Lyons, Ed Percival, Joe Thompson, Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor, Vanessa Briscoe Hay and Jason Naismith, Joe Wong, Dale Hibbert, Matt Longley, Simon Ashbury, Sarah Lippitt, Dagur Gislason and as you'll hear today, Paul Kamaski. Class of 2020. <laughs> uh, um, the, uh, well, this is our last show, isn't it? Before taking a break for the holidays. Um, I'm making my own Christmas pudding this year, by the way. Ben. <laughs> are, you, are you? Yes, I am. <laughs> Orange and star anise Christmas pudding, no of less. Of course. <laughs> it takes, yeah, it takes nine and a half hours from start to finish. Two whole oranges and five star anise. <laughs> yep, I'm putting five stars in my Christmas pudding. <laughs> if you don't have a spare nine and a half hours, you could pop your five stars into our podcast pudding, which is being lovingly prepared over in the kitchens at Apple HQ. Yum. What a fantastic idea. And on that fitting note, um, let's go over to our conversation with Paul Kamaski on episode 26, again, of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Uh, okay, so my name is Paul Kamaski. Uh, the band that you'll eventually hear is uh, The Nervous Kind. Um, that was the first band I was ever in, in Birmingham, England. Um, uh, and I think this demo was made about 1980, and the song is called Five to Monday. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Paul. My pleasure. Where are you joining us from today? Right, I, I live in Woolwich, Maine, which is... Uh, in northern New England, it's about two and a half hours north of Boston, right on the coast. For the story of this band, we have to go back to Birmingham in the late 1970s. And can you set the scene for us a little bit about your musical origins and the formation of the Nervous Kind? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it was about 1979. Uh, you know, the punk thing had happened. The mud thing had sort of was happening. And my brother uh, was in a band called the Townies who were a mod band, obviously. And I went to see them. And at that show, there was uh, 
a couple of other guys who I knew. Uh, and after seeing the townies, we all kind of decided that, shit, we could do that. We could definitely be as good as the townies. Uh, and so shortly after that, uh, the nervous guy was formed and it was with my brother, Owen, um, and with uh, a friend, Greg Nichols, who was the main songwriter. He wrote Five to Monday. And, and another friend, Morris Wolf on bass. And so um, we, uh, as much as it was about the music, it was also about the clothes at that time, you know? So uh, we had a very distinctive, we had several very distinctive looks, very 60s looks. Uh, and so we always looked great because Greg also owned a clothes store in Birmingham called Route 66. So the band always looked phenomenal. We had some great songs. And uh, yeah, we were just part of that Birmingham scene, which at the time included, you know, Duran Duran and UB40 and Dexys and The Beats. We were just kind of on the tail end of that. Yeah. Where did you sit in terms of the, the influence of the punk stuff and then the sort of, you know, the arrival of the or re-arrival of the mod scene? Where, where was the influence for you as a band? I think our, our influence was more of the American garage band stuff, that sort of Nuggets albums and that kind of weird, almost psychedelic, but kind of rough and ready, you know, because we were basically punks. None of us really knew how to play, but we uh, we certainly looked good. And uh, um, yeah, so it was very simple, kind of guitar driven, jingly jangly pop, you know, uh, uh, but, you know, yeah, so I guess that's what it was. It was kind of garage band, English punk kind of thing. Yeah. Where were you rehearsing? We rehearsed, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we rehearsed at Rich Bitch, actually. I've heard that mentioned on here before. Uh, and we rehearsed uh, mostly in Erdington because we were from Erdington, which that part of Birmingham. So we'd rehearse in any way we could, really. And then two of the members of the band ended up living in a house. It was kind of like, it's kind of like something that it's like the young ones or something like that. It was just four or five guys living in this house. And, uh, and so we rehearsed there and it didn't seem to phase anyone that, that, you know, uh, there was a band rehearsing in the corner. And, uh, so that was where we rehearsed mostly in Erdington actually. And so, yeah, it was two of the band lived there. So it seemed really feasible to have it be the rehearsal space too. Yeah. Was the was the whole clothes thing, the like meeting around Route sixty six and the whole stylish thing, was that really important to all of you? That yes. you that you did look good as a band? Absolutely it did, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Um I mean there were other you know, obviously there's other local bands and they all had things going on, but uh we it was we were really proud of the way we looked, you know. It was really important to us. And Greg was the you know, Greg who owned the store was designing clothes and so we often looked it we just looked amazing and it wasn't wasn't rare you know if we'd watched top of the puffs on a thursday night like we all did you know any birmingham band that showed up on top of the puffs be it ub40 the beat or whatever they were wearing clothes from route 66 you know so it was um yeah we felt like we were on the cutting edge of something not sure what, but we were there, you know. Yeah. What was the scene? The scene, like you mentioned, the, the Birmingham scene. How did that kind of manifest in terms of places that you were playing, and were you very supportive of one another? Um, 
I, I can't say that the Nervous Guide were that supportive of other bands, to be honest. We we kind of, we tried to create a, like a certain mystique around the band. So we didn't play a ton of shows. You know, it would be, uh, you know, and we tried to make an event when we played, you know, so. Uh, and we'd make sure we had someone open for us who was also on the scene, we we draw from their fan base and stuff like that. But we weren't like one of these bands who were out every Friday, Saturday night playing at the railway or somewhere. We tried to make our shows a little more uh, an event, special event, you know, pretty elitist, I guess. <laughs> did people buy into that? Absolutely, they did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. You know, I mean, when you're that, you know, when you're uh, that age, you know, you you don't want to be. You want to feel like you're a part of something that's not part of what everyone else is doing, you know. Uh-huh. And so we we were quite happy to kind of uh, fulfill that need, you know. And, and we were, I gotta say, we were probably a little bit arrogant about it, you know. We're like, fuck, you know, we don't need to, we don't have to play every Saturday, and we're not certainly not going to play two sets, you know. We'll play, we'll play once every couple of months, and we'll play for forty minutes, you know, and then. Uh, and leaving one in the next one and it kind of worked you know so we we would play at like the holy city zoo or uh where else was there in birmingham tell us about that what's the holy city zoo what was that like it was uh it was you know it was uh now you're probably not familiar with birmingham but it was in a part of birmingham that was kind of run down at that point it used to be where snow hill station was which is now reopened i think um so it was a nightclub and it was kind of off the beaten track a little bit and it was owned by uh, Andy Gray, who was playing for the Villa at the time. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> right. So it, it had this really kind of, ta- it was like, you know, it was like as if a football player had designed a nightclub, which he did. <laughs> and so it was kind of, it was like, it, it's what he thought a nightclub should be like. So it was kind of tacky. and uh, But it was, uh, it, it, it became a venue. You know, I, I don't think he ever, Thought it was. I thought he thought it was going to be this elite little nightclub they had in Birmingham. It just turned into a, a venue, you know. So, uh, so we played the Holy City Zoo and at the Cedar Club and place like that, and opening, you know, for all those other bands and doing that stuff. You said you were quite arrogant as a band. Did you carry that arrogance through into live performance? Uh, I think you think you are. You know, you think you're up there exuding, uh, uh, you know charm and charisma and fucking arrogance and then you listen back to that tape or you you know talk to someone who was at that show 20 years later and they're like you guys were fucking, you were awful uh, <laughs> 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 that really wasn't working you god did you look good you really look good um but you know my brother was a, my brother's a great singer and he's still out there gigging now uh he fronts a band called uh, the major toms in birmingham uh, and uh, but he's a great frontman. So my brother was always solid. You know, he was up front, looking good, singing great. Greg looked good, sang great. But me and Morris, as the rhythm section, we were just kind of winging it as best we could. But yeah, we thought we thought we were killing it and thought we were, you know, <laughs> really good. But then you listen to the, you listen to some of the tapes and it's not so great. You know? So eventually we got to finally, you know, we went and made a demo. You know. Have you, do you know, are you familiar with Steve Gibbons? Do you know Steve Gibbons, Steve Gibbons band? No, no. All right. So Steve is 
like an icon in certainly in Birmingham, you know. And he had a big hit with a song called Tulane in the late seventies. And but Steve's been around forever. So Steve was actually at the second nervous kind gig ever, and he invited us to open for him like the next week. And so we right from early on we went from obscurity to relative obscurity you know we you know, steve gibbons knew who we were and steve gibbons drummer was this guy named bob lamb and bob lamb went on to you know he recorded that first ub40 album he did all the duran duran demos and, and so bob had a little recording studio and through that steve gibbons connection we ended up recording that demo at uh, Bob Lambs, which was quite a leap for us. We'd never been in the studio before. How did you prepare? How did you prepare for that? If you if you'd never been in, well, how did you? you? You don't do you? You just don't. You don't. You don't realize you need to prepare. You just think, <laughs> okay. So we we have a show on Friday, and then we'll uh, on Monday we're going in the studio. And we I don't I don't think we did any extra rehearsal or anything. We were like, what songs should we record? And it was. I don't think we'd done any pre-production or such like stuff. You know, it was just, oh, we'll go in the studio with Bob. He'll know what to do. And so <laughs> I think it was kind of like that. So we, we turned up at the studio and, uh, and Bob made us sound great. You know, it was, uh, we did uh, Five to Monday, Screaming Rita was another song. Um, help from us and we did like three or four songs so when when you hear five to monday now does it take you back to to the recording session paul yeah in, yeah instantly i can smell the room it's like yeah I, I remember that session really really well because you suddenly you realize you're in a recording studio now which was also bob's house you know we were literally you know in his loft bedroom um recording this demo but i've never been in a recording studio before uh, and, you know, there's a drum booth, which is probably actually his closet, you know, but you're in there and the drums are all set up. Uh, and I've never recorded before and um, I've never heard playback before. So it was, uh, you know, recording the drums and then hearing them. I'm like, oh, fuck, that's what I'm doing. That's what that sounds like. Uh, so it was like that. And so, but Bob was amazing. He helped us kind of figure out, oh, he helped him with the arrangement and do it like this, have it like this and uh, coached us through it. You know, I, I, I was playing, I thought I was doing great, you know, and I got ready to do my big drum fill. And I did it, you know, and we ended the song and I'm like, well, what do you think? And he's like, it was, it sounded all right, but it sounded like the drums fell over. This is like, so <laughs> when you, when you get to that part again, don't, you don't have to play that. Do you like to? And it was very tactfully him <laughs> saying to me, yeah, forget the drum fills. You know, it sounds like that sounded like the kid fell over. Uh, anyway, so, it was just, so that's the kind of stuff I remember. And uh, yeah, it, and it was thrilling, you know. I'm just wondering, so the early days of the band and you had the swagger and the arrogance and, yeah, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that, you know, that's, that's kind of what, what you were, um, setting yourselves up as how did yeah. how did going in and recording a demo so early on after just a couple of gigs what did that do to your egos and and that swagger that you already had well i think the uh, sort of ignorance of youth it kind of just helped us through that it was like you knew it wasn't you knew you weren't the beatles you know you knew you weren't great but we're like 
oh, you know, we sound pretty good here. Yeah. So it's just that blind sort of faith. And you're like, oh, yeah, we're actually, this is probably going to happen. We're probably really good. <laughs> and, it, you know, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I stupid. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you knew you knew it wasn't, you know, amazing, but you were kind of pleased with yourself, too. Like, actually, uh, you played the song all the way through. And the biggest thing was Bob, you know, we went back a week later and Bob had mixed it and it started playing it to people and uh, other people really liked it. And so, yeah, then there was no, there was no uh, stopping us. There. We like, oh. Tell us a bit more about that. Was Bob, Bob was pretty well connected and yeah, Bob was, you know, so yeah, Bob was well, well connected and, you know, and he knew how to place a song, you know, and so he, um, by the time we had finally mixed it, he had sent it to um, uh, a small label from Stab or Stabport or Stabridge called Graduate, which was the label that UB40 were on at the time. And uh, and they were like, yeah, yeah, we, we love this. We'll put this out. And so um, we were like, oh, damn, that is, that's pretty freaking easy. You, <laughs> two shows. Get in the studio, record four songs, <laughs> and they release two of them. A double A side. Oh, no, that's a... And then, so then what happened was, in the course of that, so now only like, the whole thing has only been about five months. And then we get a, uh, a call from uh, the Beats manager, and the Beat are going on tour. And he's like, what, what do you want to play some part, you know, the, part of the tour that's going to be around the Midlands and we're like, yep, yeah, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it all seemed like it, it was meant to be, mm. it, was, it was like, oh, well, yeah, you play the shows, you do your demo, you get offered a deal, you get offered a tour and away you go. And, uh, and then we did that tour. And while we were on that tour, the demo had started doing the Rams. Uh, so by the time we, we got, we ended up, they kept adding dates for us. You know, we were supposed to do like three or four dates and then the shows were going good, you know. And so we ended up uh, doing the two London dates um, uh, at the Hammersmith Odeon, I think, uh, with, uh, it was us, the Bell Stars, Linton Quasi Johnson and the Beat. Great. Um, what a great lineup. Yeah, it was amazing. It was like, yeah. but, you know, in our heads, we're like, yep, this is the way it goes. <laughs> you know, uh, next week, Top of the Pops, can't be long now. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but, but what happened was while we were out doing this little tour, uh, the demo had started doing the rounds. And so we started getting, uh, uh, interest from other labels and we're like, oh, so that's what we're just out of completely out of our depth at that point. You know, we had heard, oh, we polygram are going to come in. And so, you know, so we we're like, oh, well, we better hold off a little bit, you know? Uh, and so, uh, and then we get back to Birmingham and we're advised by some people not to go with graduate because um, you're not going to see any money. They're going to keep all the money and we're stupid, mm -hmm. you know, we're kids. And we're like, oh, okay. All right. So don't take, don't take the money. Don't release the single. Okay. And so we didn't, we like, we're like, oh, we'll, we'll wait for a better deal. And so we shelved it. And they had printed the, from what we understand, they had printed the single and the 
cover and the whole thing. Uh, but by then we had, we had done the tour and the next logical thing was a bigger deal and another tour. And, um, and so we, we sat on it and, uh, and here I am in Woolwich, May. Mm. I'm guessing. I'm guessing you guys were on your own. You didn't have a manager at that time, presumably. No, 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 no. We had a friend who was uh, not good enough to be in the band, but was good enough to be the manager. It was like that kind of thing, you know. But it knew absolutely nothing about the business, you know. None of us did. Didn't have a clue, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, we let it slip by, you know. And we'd be getting calls from Bob, and they'd be like, "You've got to put this out. You need to put this single out." Uh, no, no, we're going to wait. And so we waited and then it was gone. Uh, were you all in agreement about that? At the, that you were you kind of unanimous in that decision? I, I would assume we were. Yeah, I can't. I don't recall anyone going, oh, no, let's, you know, we were like, no, something better coming down the pike. And uh, and then we got, I think we did some, we played, we, we opened for Dexys uh, in London. And then we did some stuff with UB40 and, um, and so it all felt like it was still on the rise, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't. Then suddenly it was over, you know. And um, yeah. I don't. I don't think it's an entirely unique story, is it? But no. I'm sure. I think no. If, no. If, for people, people coming to this podcast now at that time, there was a lot of mo- a lot of money slushing yes. around. Oh, absolutely. And stuff, and it was you know to go to to think that there was something coming, something better coming was you know an easy Fairly, easy mistake yeah. to make. Oh, absolutely. And it's a mistake I made, I've made five or six times. You know, I did it again with the nervous kind in uh, two years later. I did it again in New York. I did it again in California, just different, you just, you always on the cusp of something else, you know. It's quite possible if you did have a manager at that point that they would have advised the same thing as well. Absolutely. No, hold, yeah. up, hold, hold off, hold off, don't, don't go with a small I, label. Yeah. No, listen, you know, when, when I did, uh, the next band I was in, we signed to Virgin and our manager got us the deal. And so you think, oh, logically, uh, now we have a manager, we have a record label, we have a manager, um, we have a tentative release date for an album, so this is going to happen. But that was, it was just the next level of that bullshit, you know, it's like the manager took all the money and ran away. Uh, the la- uh, Virgin... Um, he decided to invest his money in the airline rather than in this offshoot label that we were on. And suddenly another year goes by, you have an album that's ready to go and you don't have a manager, the money's gone and the label won't answer your calls, you know, so it's just variations on those stories, you know. Oh, just, just backtracking a little bit to the, to that, um, to the nervous kind and, and, and not putting the single out. What did that do? to the relationships in the band and, and for you as a band when when it started th- to dawn on you that it wasn't going to go the way you were hoping yeah yeah it was the beginning of the end it was the beginning of the end because you know a year goes by and there hasn't been another offer and uh and greg and my brother owen you know they're the songwriters in the band uh they greg and owen decide they'd rather be living in new york and who wouldn't you know, and some other friends of ours had started going to New York and headed to Texas and, uh, you know, and, and so they were like, why are we sitting around in this band when we can go to New York? And so Owen and Greg left the band and went and lived in New York for a year, uh, almost two years, and then came back, 
with all these amazing songs that they'd written about living in New York. And so we, that's when we reformed. What was, what was that inter yeah. what was that intervening period for like for you when they'd gone for to me, New York? Yeah, what was it like for you? Um, it was initially devastating and then really fortuitous because so I I'd learned how to play drums by this point, you know. And um so I I, I it was a small community of musicians in Birmingham at the time. And so suddenly I was uh, I could play drums and people knew who I was and I was, you know, the phone would ring you want to come and play drums and so um i ended up um working with a singer songwriter named matthew edwards who's still out there doing his thing and matt uh ted was doing this uh demo for i forget who it was for and he's like i'll oh, come and play drums on the demo uh and i brought in another guy to play you know so suddenly it was like a session thing that turned into a band and we ended up signing to uh virgin yeah so it turned out to be great for me my brother's you know busing tables in new york living the dream uh, and i get a i get a, a record deal and uh yeah i'm the only one out of that band who ever had a record deal i think yeah funny the, the, tell us a little bit about the band that got that got signed to Virgin. How did that uh, kind of come together after after the that initial call? Uh, they were all people that I knew from other bands in Birmingham. Um, Ted had been Ted, who was the songwriter, had been in this band called Dance, who were really popular. The guitar player Paul had been in um, TVI and a band called the Hawks. Great guitar player. Simon, the bass player, had founded Duran Duran with the other two guys had left and had joined the Hawks. So they were all kind of minor celeb, good players in Birmingham at the time. And so it was like, it was, uh, I let's call it a super group. It was, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was like that, you know, it was like, uh, we all knew each other. We all socialized together. Ted was doing a demo. Why don't we all go and play on it? And so we did, you know, uh, and it turned out to be great. It was wonderful. And really quickly, we were down in London, meeting people, recording at Branson's private little studio in St. John's Wood. And off we went, you know, and it was a whole different uh, path. You know, it was like, there was no sending out, you know, demos and all that stuff. It was, it was just an insight into, you know, how the business worked. It was like, uh, you made this demo somebody who knows somebody puts it right on the desk of somebody who can make a decision and it happened they made the decision they're like yeah let's sign these guys and put them in the studio and you made you made an album an album with somerville yeah we did make an album together yeah we never got released do you have it i have most of that album yeah yeah it's, it's great. fucking great <laughs> yeah yeah if, if we do a part two we'll do a somerville one if i can get permission i can get permission from the others you know you know, Ted is still out there. His band, um, Matthew Edwards and the Unfortunates, have just put a great album out. And um, it's called The Birmingham Poets. And you should check that out. It's really great. And I, you know, I'm still in touch with Ted. Uh, he's just sent me his latest selection of demos for his next album. And I'm probably going to play drums on those, you know. What was the making of that record like then, Paul? It was everything you would dream of. It was pretty amazing. You know, we... Uh, we had anything, anything we wanted, we could get, you know, and so 
they initially put us away in a, a farm in the middle of nowhere with a recording studio and it was it was debauchery really we had money we had drugs and we had a recording studio and uh so we just did that and then we would we'd we'd complete four or five songs we'd contact the label they'd bring us down to london and we'd we were record. I mean, we recorded at Air Studios, and you know, it was it was phenomenal. It was next level stuff. You know, we were in the the three studios. We were in one. Tears for Fears were in the other one, doing that world changing album, whatever. What was that called? Songs from the Big Chair. Is that them? Yes, it is. Yeah. What a great record. Yeah, great record, right? And so there, and and Mick Jagger was doing his first solo album. Uh, and so we, once again, you think, well, well, this is the way this goes then. <laughs> we're in Air Studios, you know, we're recording Monday through Friday. Paul McCartney's coming in Saturday and Sunday, so we can't be there. It was like, you know, it was like, ah, it's great. You know, Mick Jagger's sitting down the other end of the hall, you know, eating his Thai food and not sharing it with us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, he's famous that, for that, Jagger. He is, he is, he, he's a bit of an asshole like that. It was, <laughs> we were, it was pretty funny because we, we were living the life, but we were also sharing, you know, one thing of McVitie's digestive biscuits. That's what we were eating, you know. But we were recording at studios and Mick Jagger was literally, you know, 60 feet away with his entourage and enough Thai food to you know, feed a village. And we're like passing our biscuits around thinking, well, surely at some point he's going <laughs> to say, do you want a spring roll or do you want to try the fried rice? <laughs> Not, I got to say, Mick probably doesn't remember this, but I remember him being a bit of a dick. He was a bit of a dick. Like, he, did not, he did not share his food. And we were like, what a, you know, we're like, what an asshole. So anyway, he goes back to the studio. <laughs> did you offer him a biscuit though, Paul? That's the thing. <laughs> I did not. You know what? I'm like, no, Mick, get your own biscuit. Yeah, no pudding for you, <laughs> Jagger. Yeah, get your own biscuit. And so, um, yeah, so we, I remember he, you know, he slinked off back down to his studio to record. To, record, to record his crap record. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. And we're like, okay, well, as soon as they fuck off, we're going to eat that food, you know? <laughs> and so, and so we waited till they all, um, till the band went back down there and we kind of, we're heading back to our studio and, uh, and we waited like five minutes and we went back out to eat the food and they'd scooped everything. They'd thrown it. They, anyone, they didn't leave a thing. They threw it all away. Yeah, it was awful. I never forgive him. In fact, I've never talked to him since. Fantastic. Yeah. So, if, but it's that thing, you know. You're like, oh, well, this is a, this is what happens next to the boys from Birmingham. You know, they. Um, There's some fantastic momentum in your in in, in both of those stories. You know, oh, the, yeah. the kind of the, the the roller coaster of it, and then so when when the. Uh, when the, the the album was kind of shelved because the, the 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 push from the label wasn't there for it for for yeah. Somerville for the second band, um, am I right in thinking you went back to a kind of a, a, a another iteration of the Nervous Kind? Yeah, and we ended up living in New York. We had, we took um, we had by then we had management, and the option was to move everyone down to London, or go back to New York. And well, I hadn't been to New York, but Owen and Greg had been to New York. And so we moved, uh, we went to New York 
um, Owen and I, my, our, our father is, uh, lives in America. So Owen and I were able to get green cards and just, so we moved, we moved here and we were like, yeah, nervous kind, New York style. And off we went on that roller coaster ride again, which was, uh, was it, was it an easy decision to, to leave all that behind and just think yes, about it something was. completely new? Yeah, it was very easy. You got it. You know, I'm old, remember? So this was, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher was running the country. It was pretty bleak here, you mm. know, and, um, true. Yeah, true. It was, it was not, it, there was, it felt hopeless is what it felt like, you know, for where we were. And so, the chance to go to New York, which was cheap, you know, it was like, I don't know, 100 pounds or something. Uh, and so you just go to New York, you take a chance. Uh, we knew we had some great songs. We were still fairly arrogant in that, you know, we but by now we've been doing it for five or six years. And so you kind of know, you've learned your trade a little bit, not like you're a pro, but you know, strong song structure, and you know how to make things happen. And and we felt pretty confident that if we could get to New York and do our thing, you know, in New York, it would, it would take off. It's a very different New York to, to, to go over to the, compared to the sort of the, uh, yeah, the, yeah. the New York of oh, yeah. the, the yeah, 2000s yeah. and stuff. Still quite a tough city to be in. It, it was, it really was. The Lower East Side was very, very different, very bleak, you know. I mean, you did not go down to Alphabet City, you know. It's, it was not, it was, it was, very much yeah yeah it was it was uh, scary time did that find its way into your music yeah it did yeah of course you know because we as much as you know you shouldn't be down or it's not safe to be down there that's exactly where you want to be there mm. you know so we used to we were always down in the east village we had a little the bar that we hung out at was on seventh and b and we were just that was our hang and we, we were always in 7B and we wrote songs about that and living on, you know, the Lower East Side. What was the, mu what was the music scene like there at the time, Paul? What, were you in amongst it, going out and seeing bands and stuff? We, we were, you know, we played the little circuit that you did down there at the time, you know, so we'd play at CBGB's and uh, a place called the Big Kahuna and you know, whatever the clubs were at the time, I'm sure none of them exist anymore. Um, but yeah, there was a scene. You you would see. You would you would see their names on the same bill as yours. You very rarely stopped to hang out and see another band. You know, you were just down there doing your thing. Uh, but it was great. It was really wonderful for about two years, and then, you know, it's New York. You know, you get one or two shots. You better be ready. You know, you better have done your stuff. You're going to get a, you'll get a shot. If you're good, they'll come and look and you'll get a shot. And, um, uh, we got our shot and then it didn't happen. And so what, you know, we suddenly you're in New York and you're the band who were really popular last year. And just like that, no one gives a shit, you know? Uh, and so we went out to the West coast to give that a go. So just before we head to head West, could you just uh, kind of uh, describe what your shot consisted of? What does that? What did that mean in sort of real terms? Getting your shot. So what it meant for us in New York was um, getting, first of all, getting some decent shows. You know, not playing at one o'clock on a Wednesday night at CBGBs. 
you know, when you finally got to the point where you were playing CBGBs or whatever the club was at the time on a Saturday in a good spot, um, well, then, you know, it's New York, you know, people will people are aware of, of, of what's going on. And so we, and we became aware that, oh, you have labels. There are labels here. We haven't invited labels, but we've, you know, we've invested a year here. We've worked our way up. We're drawing a crowd. There's a little bit of a buzz. And so people will come. And so, oh my God, you know, I'm just remembering doing that demo. So we ended up recording a demo, um, through friends of friends, we recorded a, a Sigma sound um, in New York. Our bass player's girlfriend at the time got us in at Sigma, and we did an, a really good demo, really good recording. And then that led us to recording with a real producer in New York. And we're like, okay, this is good. We've got two publishing companies who want it, who want the songs. Um, that'll lead to a record deal. We'll do, you know, all the things you think, you know, we'll get a publishing deal, we'll get a record deal, we'll do a tour, da-da-da. And all that stuff was starting to happen again. And we showed up at the studio to do this um, demo with this real producer. He'd just done a Talking Heads thing, and we were going into his studio. He had seen us live, and uh, we showed up. We were going, to, I can't even remember his name. I think his name was Jay, Jay Mark. Jay, anyway, we go... It's, we're booked for the weekend. We're doing our big demo, next level production. And we show up at the studio and he's clear, we met him once and he was, you know, a wacky dude. But, you know, you, you knew it was not, it was not, you know, there was, I don't know what, anyway, he was, he seemed a little out there when we first met him, but fine, that's okay. He's sure. an artist, you know. By the time we get to the studio, we're booked in for the weekend. We get to the studio in New York. We get there, and he's sitting in the at the console, and he invites us in to the mixing room, you know. And we're like, oh, okay, this is weird. And he's like, no, we're gonna talk. We have lots of things to discuss before we play. And I'm like, oh, you know, so. <laughs> So he's in that room and we're like in the room with him and thinking, oh, this is not going to go. Well. Yes. This, is, this is not, this is not the vibe we were looking for. <laughs> and so we, you know, we're in and out. We're trying to not spend too much time with him. We get outside. We're talking like, oh, he's, he's losing his mind here. This is not going to work out. We go back in. And so now he's trying to fly the console. You know, all the lights are going on the mixing board. He's looking into the studio, which is like, now he's like, it's like he's on Star Trek, you know, and he's got the Enterprise and he's flying us through the universe. <laughs> and like, we just want to record two songs. We just, just, if we could just get the drums down for two songs. And he's like, no, no, the universe is ready for us. We'll fly. Oh, shit. So, you know. So, you know, we, we're back out in the, uh, in the, in the lounge, trying contemplating what to do. And in the meantime, you know, the, um, the techs who are in the studio have like, they make some calls, you know, and they're like, yeah. suddenly, literally the, you know, the guys in the white coat show up and, uh, and, uh, our demo opportunity was whisked out of the building. He was gone. He had a complete 
utter uh, meltdown. So there we are. Oh, we're sitting. We're in New York in one of the best studios in the city, um, and uh, it's it's that demo is not happening. So we we hung out for a little while and then went home. And that was the uh, that was that was the shot that um, you know, you know we did we, we did record it. You re- we'd made some great music in New York, recorded some great demos, but that that New York kind of trajectory was we'd gone and now it was it felt like uh, we're sidling down. Mm-hmm. Even though we were doing the best music we'd ever done at the time, it felt like the ride was on the down, and so. Yeah, that's really tough. If you if you feel like as a band you've actually hit your peak, you're making the best music you've ever made. Yep, yeah, and no one gave a shit. No one really cared. And I, I of course, I still have those demos, and they're the ones I listen to, because, uh, you know, they they were written as a band. We play them really well. Uh, they're well recorded, um, and but. The, the ship had sailed, so to speak, you know. So describing it as no one, no one gave a shit. You know, that, yeah. that is that is the truth of it, isn't it? That you yeah, get to, yeah. you, you, you're desperately trying, to, uh, yes. uh, co- collectively as musicians and and songwriters and whatever. Uh, part of the pursuit is desperately trying to get people to give a shit. Yes, <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. In this thing that you've invested so much of yourself, yeah. and you, totally. And, not not even thinking about kind of time yeah. and finance and thinking about you know your own create creative endeavors into these things and then you have to navigate through so yeah. many things to try and get people to give a shit <laughs> yeah right think, and it's that, it, and it's that thing of you know you you realize you have to be prepared you have to have done the work you have to be at your best you have to all the things need to line up and then you need this huge jolt of luck you know because you need to find this the someone in the industry who's on that same path and they're gonna you know when you sign for their label they're gonna be there for more than three months you know you sign you get a deal you sign the guy who signed you leaves and goes and joins another label well forget it then you're done you know mm. no one because no one on that label cares about you in fact they actively dislike you because you were signed by someone who's not there anymore it's like I didn't know that part of the puzzle, you know. But, um, no, it's not reality. a lesson you learn until it's too late. For, for yeah, the right. Most part, is yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. You, mm. you, you learn about it after you've done it, you know. So. All the all the sort of trials and tribulations that you're talking about, Paul. It it's a wonder that you don't just walk away from it. So, I, I, <laughs> so I have several times. <laughs> but what what is it that keeps you? coming back keeps you hanging in there what it is is and it's gonna sound cliched you know but i never feel uh more alive than in that moment when you're either on stage and you know you've got an audience completely in your hand or you're in the studio and you're listening back to something that you know doesn't matter really ultimately whether anyone else knows but you know that you've um created something that's like amazing you did that that came out of you and it went that way and it came back and it's like wow that's what i do and i it never feels any better than that it never you know it's like 
I've I've quit doing this so many times. My wife would find it hilarious that I retired. But you know, it's like I can't not do this because I kind of love those moments where something that I think is um, something that has moved me. I look across the room and I see that it's had that effect on somebody else. Right? Fucking hell! I don't know that it gets any better than mm. that. So that's why I do it. I mean, isn't that why you do it? I mean, yeah, you, 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 it? you nailed it. You absolutely nailed yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I, you know, it's like, and it's, and it, you know, of course, in there are times in your life where you want your audience to be millions of people. And then you go, all right, I'd, I'd like my audience to be uh, just people who really liked it. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how big they are, you know, it doesn't matter how many they are. And then, it, you, you know, particularly now with all these other online platforms, I put my music up there all the time. And it's like, I don't have to, um, I don't have to go out and tour or any of that stuff. If I've created something that I think is uh without sounding pretentious, emotionally valid. If I think it's good, I'll put it out there. And if, um, you know, 40 people listen to it and three of them leave me a comment and that those comments really understand what I just tried. I have an audience, right? So I'm, I'm happy with that. You know. Before we kind of... Uh, head towards the sort of end of the interview. Yeah, I, yeah. I did. I, I stopped you in your uh, tracks when you were about to talk to us about heading heading to the the west coast with 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 the band. Could we would we we pick up that little bit of the story. We um, by the time we actually got it together to move west, it was myself and my brother, and uh, and by the time we got out west, it was really just me. My brother didn't want to be out there, you know, and he ended up back in New York which um, was good for him and it was good for me. And it just, it freed me up to do whatever I wanted. And so uh, then I just played with so many different singer-songwriters and bands in San Francisco. It was amazing. I would say it was the most rewarding and most creative time of my life, you know. Uh, just playing with some great musicians out there and uh, without nobody out there had ever heard of the nervous kind no you know no 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 it didn't matter you know it was uh i was just that english that weird little english guy who played drums were you were uh, you making records with people paul yeah 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 i was making records yeah uh, no, nothing that was uh who did i make records with i made records with a band called the sunshine club uh i, I made records with a band called the music lovers uh, I made some recordings with a singer-songwriter named Richard Buckner. Uh, and so uh, just a ton of stuff. Just, you know, always, never, you're never going to hear me on the radio. But I was doing that stuff that we were just talking about, just stuff that was soulfully rewarding, you know. And um, I was getting to be a musician and doing the thing, you know, and without having the pressure of... Um, uh, holding a band together and looking for a deal. I was like, oh, I really like that guy. I like that songwriter. I'd go to his show and say, I really like him. And I'd say, hey, if you're looking for a drummer, call me. And he would. And that was it. Uh, 
and then I just then eventually started writing my own stuff you know and it, that was like uh that's what I want to do uh, there must be a really uh, like quite a quite a large community of people that you've connected with through your music over the years certainly yeah 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 and yeah. do you main, do you maintain those connections how how, how I, often do I you do. speak to her yeah uh, I spoke to Greg from the nervous kind uh yesterday um he now lives in Connecticut and he wants me to help him record some of his songs uh as I said I've uh Ted uh from the the music lovers and the unfortunates I'm gonna play on his next record I'm pretty sure um who else the sunshine club they're still out there doing stuff I've, I've uh a friend mike corkendall who lives up in portland oregon i want to do something with him you know so yeah I, most you know my friend in la mj who i write he writes music for movies i write songs with him and put them in movies and stuff and so a lot of these connections i were like my first connections in birmingham my first connections in new york my first connections in San Francisco or LA, uh, and I'm still I yeah I I'm good I network I <laughs> I keep connections yeah I love it you know and it's uh, you know it, it it's you're surrounded by people who love what they're doing you know uh, and so if they call me to to either sing or play drums or play piano it's worth it because I, they wouldn't they're not they're not calling me to because they're like i think i've got a song and i want to make a demo it's like now i've got this thing that i'm proud of and i think you would be your contribution would be worthy and so uh, that's the only stuff i do you know i'm working with a songwriter up here now and it's like ah oh, there's nobody knows this guy who i'm working with now uh but he's pours his heart and soul into what he does and i love doing it you know mm. it's great there's so much in your so much in the stories that you told paul that kind of sheds a really poor light on this notion of an industry you know and of, of course it's impossible not to want to be chasing the dream when you're a, yeah, a, yeah. a young man but yeah yeah it's it's really uh interesting to see that the point at which you kind of move away from that and uh stop being involved in all that bullshit is the point at which you become happiest as a musician exactly right uh but i couldn't be told that i couldn't be told that at the time you know because you have like all these misconceptions of what you're supposed to be doing and and how you're supposed to do it and then suddenly you break through that bullshit uh, when only when it slapped you down 10 times and you and you you've had one more uh, situation where it's not going to pan out and you still can't stop doing it <laughs> you still want to do it so you better find a way to do it that's just rewarding for you i think that's a fantastic point to kind of draw draw things to a close I, I, we're pretty much at the the end of the the questions we've got unless ben you have a tangential question which you occasionally throw in at the end of an episode do you have a tangential question <laughs> do it, ben. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't I mean I didn't really have a tangible tangential question I just it feels like we've passed over some some things without taking giving them due attention like I don't know well the 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 experience of being through all these musical experiences with your brother across yes. this across this amazing yeah. journey yeah what yeah, yeah. what was that like well it wasn't like the Gallagher's it wasn't like that you know um 
yeah, you know, now I truly love my brother and he truly loves me. And it was, it was really hard for us. It was really, um, to not achieve what we set out to do as brothers, uh, as a band to always just be, uh, on the cusp, it eventually became, um, destructive, you know, because you, you, who else are you going to blame except from that person who's always there, you know? And so when, by the time we got to California and, um, uh, we were both writing and it was like, uh, what's this band supposed to be about? And, and, uh, and I've realized that, you know, uh, I can't do this with my brother anymore. I just can't do this with my brother anymore. I love him too much, you know? And it's like, uh, and he's a New York person. He loves New York. I hated New York by this point. So it was tough. It was tough. And there was a period where we just didn't do anything together, you know, you know, so, uh, but yeah, I spoke to him yesterday. He seems all right. <laughs> And you're going to make music uh, with him again. Yeah, I will make music. I, if I go to Birmingham, we always go and do something together. Um, you know, I played with him at, he was at the, do you know the Hearing Hands in Kingsley? He plays at, he plays over there quite a lot. So if I get the opportunity to sit in with him, I do. Uh, slap a tambourine, sing a couple of songs, it's great. Uh, you know, but he's, he's a phenomenal musician, you know. It's, uh, it's hard, I think it gets, if we spend too much time together trying to do music, it, I personally, it stirs this thing of like, wait a second, what, why, why didn't, why aren't we the Gallagher's? We should have done that, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's tough, but I love him dearly. Well, your, your, your story is amazing, Paul. And it, I, I agree with Ben. It feels like we've, we've probably had our foot, on the get, uh, it, uh, the momentum of the nervous kind uh, took over the podcast tonight, and we raced, <laughs> <laughs> we raced through. Um, but it's it's fascinating, and it encapsulates so much of uh, the ideas, so many of the ideas that sort of inform the idea for the the, the thinking behind this podcast. But thank you so oh, much for coming on and speaking to us. It's been it's, it's been, been brilliant to pleasure. hear your stories. It has been. Can brilliant. I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. How did you find out about the nervous kind or me? How did, what, what was that initial connection? How did that happen? Do you know? Well, um, <laughs> yes. Um, there is a, uh, the Birmingham Music Archive is a fantastic uh, resource and has all sorts of stuff on there. And uh, it, was, it was through that. Yeah. Looking, looking on there and reading, reading the, uh, the, 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 the blog post that the was bio. up on there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, ah. yeah, you can't just read that and then scroll to the next page. That was, I've got to try and get in touch with this guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, good, yeah, good. Yeah. It was a fantastic Because I, I wrote, yeah, yeah, I wrote that a couple of years ago. So that's good. It's good that it's still out there doing its thing. And you can, you can listen to all the Nervous Kind stuff on uh, Reverb Nation. I posted all the, the demos on Reverb Nation, the Nervous Kind Reverb Nation. And all my albums are on. Bandcamp, please do. That would be awesome. Yeah, we'll put links in the show notes so people can find all of that stuff. Yeah, great, Paul. There's, yeah. De there's definitely. I mean, we have said this to some, some people before, but it feels very much so with your story that there's there's a book or a film script in the store <laughs> in your musical story that needs writing. You know, you tell it beautifully. There's, oh, thank you. Uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd put some time into thinking about about you know following that through as well. 
Yeah, I, I do think about it, but I, I don't know how to do that yet, but I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. But uh, I was thinking of just t talking to myself and then posting it on SoundCloud and you can just listen to those wackadoodle stories. Thank you so much, Paul. Can we just finish off with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now, please? Uh, so you're about to listen to Five to Monday, recorded by The Nervous Kind in Birmingham in 1980. Enjoy. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Great. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 